Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 425th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the nationally recognized author, consultant, and educator, Deborah Greider. Deb is sitting in this morning for Dr. Erica Reamer, who's taking a well-deserved vacation. And good morning, Deb. It's great to have you substituting for Erica this morning. Thanks, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Folks, my good friend, Deb Greider, who's been on the ICD-10 Monitor editorial board for years, as well as a frequent guest here on Talk 10 Tuesdays, was infected with a coronavirus. And she's here today to tell us all about her experience, but also about coding the sequela effects of COVID-19. Thanks, Chuck. It's been a long journey, and I'm grateful to be here today to share what I've learned. Deb, we're grateful, too. It was such a shock when you sent me an email several months ago explaining what had happened to you. It was a shock for me, too. Yeah, indeed. As we were speaking of coding just a few minutes ago, a reminder that Laurie Johnson is going to have the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report today. And Cheryl Erickson will be here later in the broadcast. Cheryl is launching a new series on CDI, Past, Present, and Future. Speaking of series, our good friend Shannon DeConda begins a new series here on Talk 10 Tuesday, as well as ICD-10 Monitor. She's going to be reporting on the 2021 E&M codes. There are massive changes in the AMA guidelines for 2021. Indeed there are, and you're going to be reporting our lead story. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. To celebrate Ipspalooza, ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesdays are giving away a one-month free subscription to ICD-10 Monitor's educational webcast portal. That's unlimited ICD-10 Monitor webcast for one month for one lucky individual. Enter before August 10th. The winner will be announced on Talk 10 Tuesday, August 11th. Enter now. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And a colleague of mine called me recently. The reimbursement rates for PACE, or Programs for All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly in Florida, had suddenly dropped 20%. He asked if I knew why. To answer his question, let's talk about per member per month or PMPM and prospective payments. In the 1980s, Medicare started paying for inpatient acute care based on the diagnosis of the patient. More importantly, the amount of payment was determined for the coming fiscal period and was fixed ahead of time. The concept replaced cost reimbursement. When hospitals were paid based on the cost they incurred, Medicare could end up paying more than they expected and hospitals filed expensive and complicated appeals. Most of our individual insurance plans are perspective as well. They are a rigid form of PMPM. At the start of the plan year, you get a quote for your premium. If you like the rate and the coverage, you sign up. You pay for your monthly premium, and when the plan period is over, you can usually re-enroll at a slightly higher rate per month. As the rate goes up, you may shop around to find another insurance company. Medicare Advantage is a modified form of PMPM. As claims are submitted, Rates are adjusted based on the diagnosis from the claims. Medicare allows risk adjustments that reflect a base cost and an adjustment factor based on the chronic diseases that the patients suffer from. COVID-19 has turned all of this on its head, and there are huge winners and losers. Patients either can't or don't get treatments that would normally drive costs. What my colleagues saw in the PACE program was a temporary fall in utilization impacting the PMPM computations. 
Let's make sure as we move forward that providers don't caught, get caught in a COVID-19 donut hole. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's July 28th. It's my birthday. And you're listening to the 425th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. Would you welcome a 3% to 10% boost to your revenue stream? This is the opportunity for hospitals and physician practices that effectively negotiate contracts with payers during a time of severe financial stress. But it doesn't happen automatically. You must demonstrate the value you deliver to insurance plan members, including quality care that results in fewer hospital readmissions. If contract negotiating seems intimidating, plan to join an ICD-10 Monitor webcast this week. Experienced negotiator Terry Fletcher will share strategies to ensure that your payer contracts align with your organization's best interests. Register now for Payer Contract Negotiations, Key to Improve Bottom Line Results. The webcast is this Thursday, July 30th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY at checkout. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and welcome back. Good morning, Deb. Hello to our listeners out there. This morning, my topic is payer denials. I have seen some trends and wanted to discuss them with you. Denials are on the increase and require a proactive approach by the organization. Some specific diagnoses that are targeted that I've noticed are acute congestive heart failure, toxic or metabolic encephalopathy, acute respiratory failure, sepsis, which is Dr. Reamer's favorite, hyponatremia, severe malnutrition, which we talked about last week, acute kidney failure, and acute tubular necrosis. You may want to have a second look at these cases, especially if the length of stay is less than the expected length of stay for the DRG or if the condition is the only CC or MCC. When performing the second review, focus on the clinical information. Does it support the diagnosis? I know that the official coding and reporting guidelines say that the provider may use their own criteria to establish a diagnosis. The payer denial letters are now including their criteria to clinically support a diagnosis. For example, for acute CHF, they may look for that chest x-ray that supports the diagnosis. Another trend is procedures. I've noticed an increased number of denials based on procedure coding, but haven't seen a specific trend on specific procedures. Um, Review of the technical ED levels where the payers are decreasing the technical ED level. Um, correcting pharmaceutical units, the conversion factor in the charge master must be set up accurately. This process is complicated because the HICPIC description of the pharmaceutical item is not equal to the dosage amount, so you have to get that factor accurate. You may also create edits in the scrubber to stop pharmaceutical units that appear to be inadequate. Some actions that can be taken proactively to address the payer denials include review the rules for a compliant query, 
ensure the documentation is consistent regarding the type and acuity and is confirmed in the discharge summary. Take time to, for second reviews of single CCs and MCC cases. Review payer denials with coders and CDSs so that they learn more from the process. Provide ongoing education to providers, coders, and CDSs. The, deni the denial letters are a, a cost to the revenue cycle, not just time, but approximately $10 per hour for each denial letter or time spent on each denial letter. A good adage may be to look twice but bill once. With that, back to you, Deb. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Deb. And thank you so very much, Lori Johnson. That was a great report. This morning, we are pleased to introduce a new series here at ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thanks to Cheryl Erickson, we're going to learn more about CDI. It's past, the present, and the future. Here now with part one is senior healthcare consultant Cheryl Erickson. Good morning. To understand where we are as a CDI profession, it's important to understand how and why the profession began. In the following months, I'm going to be examining many of the metrics currently used to evaluate the success of CDI professional and CDI departments in hopes it may help those who lead and oversee CDI departments to better understand the need to rethink how we measure success and if it's really necessary to continue to measure a return on investment. The origins of clinical documentation improvement profession can be traced back to implementation of Medicare's DRG, or Diagnostic Related Group or System, back in 1983. It was during this time that CMS drastically changed their reimbursement process, creating a relationship between coded claims data and reimbursement. The original DRG system divided some DRGs based on the presence of a complication and comorbidity referred to as a CC, or pediatric age defined by 0 to 17 years. The DRG system created a way for hospitals to show they're caring for patients who require more resources than the average Medicare patient. The CC list remained virtually unchanged for almost 24 years, making it easy to incorporate identifying these conditions into coding workflow. In fact, by the mid-2000s, nearly 80% of Medicare patients had CCs, in part due to better coding of secondary diagnoses, reducing the power of the DRG system. Of course, CMS had to make a change, and this resulted in implementation of the Medicare Severity, or MSDRG, in fiscal year 2008. MSDRGs no longer included pediatric age distinctions, and the CC list was completely revised, resulting in an estimated decrease in Medicare patients with the CCs from 80% to 40%. As hospital executives came to better understand this reimbursement mechanism, they saw the potential advantage of implementing a CDI program to see if such a program could increase revenue by capturing CCs and MCCs really igniting the growth of the CDI profession as its own unique entity. Another important change in fiscal year 2008 was specification of a secondary diagnosis as present on admission or not. Implementation of POA allowed CMS to distinguish a comorbidity, which is defined as a condition that existed prior to admission, from one that occurred during admission. This supported implementation of the hospital-acquired conditions, better known as HACs. 
This is one of the first quality programs dependent upon coded claims data, and it expanded the impact of coded data on hospital reimbursement. The next significant change occurred in physical year 2013. This change was not related to the structure of MSDRG, so it didn't have a direct impact on reimbursement, but it does have an indirect impact, and that's the introduction of mandatory quality programs. It's one thing to monitor a case for a hack. It's another much more complicated process to monitor the potential impact of each of these mandatory quality programs. Although the origins of CDI programs were aligned with implementation of the prospective payment system and DRG reimbursement mechanisms, many CDI departments have struggled to continue that alignment as they move to a quality-based program. Our quality metrics must evolve as the role of the CDI professional evolves, and our metrics must accurately reflect the impact of our work by capturing the complexity of healthcare reimbursement as a reflection of the acuity of our patient population. I hope you'll join me on this journey as we explore these metrics. And back to you, Deb. Thanks, Cheryl. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Cheryl Erickson. Cheryl is the Clinical Program Manager for Iodine Software. Chuck? Thanks, Deb, and thank you again, Cheryl. And you can read Cheryl's first installment in this remarkable series in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Up next, Shannon Aconda with her new series on the 2021 E&M changes, of which there are plenty. You're listening to the 425th Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Dramatic constant change is the new norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you've had to adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. Conferences have been shut down from coast to coast, yet it's as important as ever to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. Plus, CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Now you can get critical continuing education with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor educational webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team can access dozens of exclusive webcasts covering a comprehensive range of timely, vital topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? Visit the portal page at ICD University for more details and to sign up for a complimentary three-day trial. There are massive changes in the new AMA Evaluation and Management Documentation Guidelines for 2021, and that's why we asked Shannon DeConda to produce a series for ICD-10 Monitoring Talk 10 Tuesday to review those changes, keeping in mind, of course, that they're effective in just four short months. Here now is Shannon DeConda. Good morning, Shannon. Good morning, Mr. Chuck Buck, and happy birthday. It's hard to believe we are already at the end of July, and as Chuck said, we have four short months from changing the way we score office-based DNM services. While many begin to work toward training and education of the staff of coders and auditors and providers, we must remember that we still have four months of the current E&M guidelines. So be careful when you start training and how you start training. Every organization should adapt a training and implementation plan that works best for what your size and structure can hold. As you've probably heard, this change will impact the required documentation components and an effort to relieve a need to generate all this erroneous documentation that we've been creating for years. 
The changes include replacing the arduous history and exam scoring criteria by only requiring history and exam that are actually deemed medically appropriate based on what the patient's presenting problem is. There's been a lot of concern, however, about what that interpretation will be of what is considered a medically appropriate history and exam, and it seems that answer will be more clinical in nature than it has been in the past, which may necessitate more peer-to-peer reviews. When we consider this radical change, two, these two key components of ENM services, we must consider that this change is more relevant to how we score the documentation as opposed to how our providers create the documentation. This change should permit our providers to focus their efforts on eliminating the need of overpopulated EMR templates, copy and paste, clinical plagiarism, and many macros that have plagued our EMRs since their existence. We should train our physicians that the goal of documentation, quite frankly, as it's always been, is to communicate the complexity associated with that patient interaction. Not every patient will be a level five, and not every encounter is expected to be a level five. In the, as well as the evidence through how severe or acute that patient's condition is or isn't based on the documentation. So we will focus ENM office-based services 99202 through 99215 on the PROFI side using MDM or time. MDM's been given a facelift by the AMA. The Marshfield MDM audit tool that's been accepted by the industry standard of average for years utilizes a point system for those three distinct areas of MDM. Um, that will get a little bit of a facelift. They include the diagnosis of the patient, analyzing the data and complexities of the work involved and the orders created, and also considering the risk of the patient with that specific episode of, uh, episode of care. These three categories did survive the change to ENM, but some obvious wording revisions were made. But all in all, the most prominent changes to MDM came in the data and complexity. So you should make sure you concentrate in that area and understand that complex coding that's going to be associated with that column. Real quick, let's also, in 2021, time may be used in lieu of ENM. Time has radical changes. In 2020, non-face-to-face time can only be reported using a prolonged services code, but that cumulative time of the whole day of that encounter associated with that patient will be added together to support time, even time spent documenting the encounter. We've been through some radical changes in how we treat patients, how we report those services, even how we work when coming to coding, auditing, billing, and providing patient care. Just as you're able to take a breath, it is now time to implement changing uh, education for 2021. So put a plan in place, follow through the necessary steps to make those changes seamless for your team, and Chuck will keep plugging away and helping everyone along the way. Thanks, uh, Shanna, very much. That was Shanna DeConda. Shanna is the founder of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, and she's a partner of Doctors Management. We mentioned at the top of the broadcast, Deb Greider was diagnosed with COVID-19 earlier this year. 
She's recovering now, and I'm so that she wrote a very personal account of her experience for ICD-10 Monitor. And she joins us now to report our lead story this morning, coding sequela to COVID-19. Deb, please take it from here. Thanks, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Yes, I did have COVID-19 in early March, and I was very, very sick for about a month. And then I got better, and then three weeks after my recovery, I began suffering late effects such as shortness of breath. It returned. My cough returned. I was extremely fatigued, couldn't concentrate. I had some memory issues. So that got me thinking. I got me interested in finding out what are these late effects. So it became my mission to find out everything about the sequela effects of COVID-19. There was a study published by the CDC that was released July 24th that indicates that 35% of COVID-19 outpatients have not returned to their usual state of health. And that does not surprise me. Um, it's very difficult sometimes for physicians that don't, aren't familiar with post-COVID-19 late effects to, to really grasp it. But as of today, think about this, there are over 4,294,770 cases as of 9 o'clock Eastern time this morning, and we've had 148,056 deaths. With those patients who survive, what post-COVID late effects are we going to see? Well, some of the um, surveys I've done and some of the um, uh, research I've done indicate that shortness of breath is one, fatigue, thrombocytopenia, blood clots or thrombosis, dizziness, some patients are having seizures, strokes, other neurological problems, sleeping disorders, sadness, PTSD, depression, um, and then several ENT groups that I work with have been seeing sudden hearing loss and tinnitus in their patients, uh, difficulty concentrating, um, vision impairment, cardiovascular complications, strokes, lung scarring, and in really acute cases, some patients are suffering kidney disease, um, kidney failure, kidney injuries. So we're learning more about this every day. And some of these conditions, according to scientists all over the world, say that these conditions can last up to six months to a year, and some of the more serious late effects can be permanent. So most certainly we will see more sequela conditions emerge as people recover. So practitioners will probably continue to treat many more patients with specific post-COVID-19 conditions. So with so many new cases of COVID on a daily basis, this is only the beginning and we need to get prepared. So some people may ask, what is sequela? It's the residual or late effect produced after the acute phase of an illness or injury that is terminated. And there's no time limit in which a sequela um, code can be used. But here's the trick. Documentation is key. Physicians have to document that there was a relationship with COVID-19 or a late effect of COVID with the condition they're treating. So first of all, let's say you have a patient who comes in with shortness of breath and fatigue. They had um, COVID-19. So you're going to code first the shortness of breath, which is R06.02, the fatigue, R5383, and then you're going to code the sequela to COVID, which is B94.8. So let's say you're not certain if the condition treated during the encounter is sequela or a late effect of COVID, but the patient had a confirmed diagnosis of COVID. Now that can be either by testing or confirmation in the practitioner's documentation. And the ICD-10 guidelines, the official guidelines were revised in Chapter 1 on April 1st 
uh, for certain infectious and parasitic diseases to add coding for COVID-19, uh, sequencing of coding 19, et cetera. So uh, COVID-19. So it's important that you review those guidelines if you haven't. And when not certain if the condition treated is sequela or a late effect, you code the first, the condition you're treating, if it's, not confirmed in the documentation, it was a late effect. And then you could code Z86.19, which is the personal history. So let's say the patient comes in, let's say for hypertension follow-up, and they had COVID-19, you could code the hypertension first, and then the, the fact that they had the personal history, the Z86.19, to indicate that they had a personal history of the infectious and parasitic disease. If they're coming in for follow-up, this is another question somebody asked me. For an exam after they've been treated, they don't have any late effects or sequela, you would code Z09 for the encounter for follow-up and Z86.19 for the personal history. So it is all about the documentation. Keep that in mind. Physicians have to document the condition is the late effect. That's important. And if their documentation does not indicate it and the patient had a positive COVID-19, either by testing or by confirmation in the physician's documentation, we should be querying the practitioner to make sure that it's clear. Um, another thing that I think is really important is that physicians document that they've counseled patients related to prevention measures, such as wearing a mask and washing hands, etc. There is a great article that came out in COVID-19 yesterday uh, related to COVID-19, and that was um, um, on the uh, USA Today, and if you can Google it, you can find that article about the sequela effects. And then also there's an AHA.org fact sheet on coding COVID-19. And there's lastly also a good Facebook page for survivors groups for recovered patients that anyone can join, and you can hear all the experiences people are having. Chuck? Thanks so very much. You can read Deb Greider's reporting on this very timely issue in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. We've asked our panelists to remain to answer some questions that you have been sending in to us. And Deb, I wanted to circle back and ask you, one of the uh, effects of COVID-19 we're hearing is a loss of taste. Did you experience that? Smell and taste typically is during the... Um, I haven't found any research yet that says that's ongoing, but that could be uh, a, a post-COVID late effect of, of COVID-19. We're going to see many more conditions pop up because this is just the beginning, and, and scientists are just now learning and researching this as people are recovering. Indeed. Thanks, Deb. And a reminder again, you can read Deb's excellent reporting on this very timely issue in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. A uh, couple of questions. Let's begin uh, with a question from Andrew. He says, with respect to DRG downgrade denials, if the appeal is upheld or the clinical indicators are lacking, do you recode the case on the back end? Lori, that's for you. Most of the time, the payer will request that you resubmit the claim with the adjustments. Um, you have three levels of appeal, so you can um, continue to appeal, and you can even go beyond um, the three levels to do peer-to-peer -peer, uh, review as well. So um, it's good to keep all the options open, and um, that eventually, whatever the finding is, if it if it if um, your denial is not overturned, then you will have to make the changes to the codes. 
Thanks, Lori, very much. And Andrew, thanks for asking such a good question. Here's one from our good friend Stanley Nockerson. Shannon, this is for you. Stanley wants to know, how do the E&M coding changes impact telehealth visits? Chuck, I think that's a great question. You know, they extended telehealth to allow us to use the office-based E&M codes. Um, whether that's going to be extended and for how long, we know the PHE was recently extended, which gives us those benefits longer. So those code sets are impacted. So when providing telehealth services, if you're using that code set, it would make sense that you would have to follow those applicable rules come January 1st of 2021. Remember, those changes are an AMA change. They're not a specific carrier. That was actually a bonus for us. CMS had first mentioned those changes and then AMA came in and kind of caught things up, which was quite great because it leveled that. So that's going to be across the board for all carriers. So we'll have to wait to see telehealth, but that would be my answer right now based on the knowns. Thanks, Shannon, very much. And Stanley, thanks for a very good question. That's going to be a wrap for our 425th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank our panels today, Shannon DeConta, whom you just heard, Cheryl Erickson, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, and of course, our guest co-host, Deb Greider. And I want to thank Dr. Erica Reamer for solo hosting Talk 10 Tuesdays while I was on medical leave of absent. I'm back, and I want to thank all the caregivers at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego for their loving and very supportive care. And before you go, remember, you can always listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.